episode 34. I started my investing journey at age 34. The best athlete to wear the number 34 is Shaquille O'Neal, and in 1934, Franklin Roosevelt enacted the Gold Reserve Act, which meant that at the time, any individual or business holding more than $100 worth of gold had to turn in that excess gold to the Federal Reserve in exchange for cash in order to raise the money supply at the height of the Great Depression. Beyond MD, episode 34, here we go! Hey everyone, welcome back to the Beyond MD podcast. No time for small talk, straight to medium talk today, as this is the longest episode to date. I'm going to rely very heavily on my guest, who is Gareth Tingling. He is a portfolio manager at Foster & Associates. Now, Gareth comes with a lot of experience, but most importantly, he is extremely insightful. And if you listen to the entire podcast, I promise you, you will walk away with some financial nuggets, but also some nuggets relevant to life itself. I do wish I had more time to talk to Gareth, but we dive into a lot today that is relevant to anybody investing in the markets. That includes people who live and breathe finance for a living, but also DIY investors. We're going to be diving into buy and sell side analysts, understanding their angles and incentives, understanding why it can be so important to know how many analysts are covering a company, especially in the small cap space. We will dive into stock valuation, the metrics, understanding these metrics. We will dive into equity risk premium and more. Now, we will talk about a few companies like Apple and NVIDIA, but remember, there are no buy and sell recommendations. This is for education only. And finally, this episode was recorded on September 9th, so you will hear us say things like, the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note is 3%. Well, as of today, that yield has jumped to more than 4%. We live in truly incredible times. And without further delay, here's my interview with Gareth Tingling. Hey, Gareth, welcome to the podcast. Where does a pod find you today? Well, I'm working from home in uh, lovely Oakville. I've lived here since 1998. So uh, my wife and I've uh, been here for long enough that we know the place, but I don't think we're ever going to be native uh, Oakvillians. I I like Oakville as well. It's where my mother-in-law lives. So when we visit her, I have a routine of jogging down the lakeshore, hitting up the Starbucks. And it's it's a beautiful place. But Gareth, really excited to have you on today uh, to talk about our topic. And maybe before we dive into it, just tell us a bit about yourself and what you do day to day. Sure. So I'll say this. You know, most of what your listeners are interested, if, they're, if people are looking at me, they can find me on LinkedIn. So there's a formal and an informal piece. I'll start with the kind of what I call the LinkedIn piece, kind of dry, and I'll try and enliven it a little bit. And then I'll get into the informal part because I think most of your listeners are going to be multifaceted people. And I think most of us are multifaceted. So my career spans three phases prior to this one. I started in marketing at Unilever in PepsiCo straight out of MBA school. Um, this is marketing before the internet really kind of fun times back then. Uh, And this is when I learned that I should be an analyst, really, that I had that mindset. At this stage of my life, my wife and I were double income, no kids or dinks, as people referred to it back then. (laughs) It was a great time to be working with with that kind of income. And we used to go out night clubbing and stuff like that on Sunday nights, believe it or not. Then I went to (laughs) Bay Street as an analyst. Uh And I was there for 16 and something years. I love the work mostly. And some of what I learned during that phase is going to be shaping the topic for this podcast, as I understand. So I cranked out 80 to 100, uh, 80 to 100 hours a week while I, while I worked as an analyst. Wow. Um, which, again, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with some of this kind of stuff in their chosen fields. During this period of time, my kids were born, they grew up, and they went to high school. Uh, my wife was essentially a single mom 
operationally for a good chunk of that with me cranking out those hours, obviously. And then the third phase, I was a COO of a startup. And it was here that I realized I had what it takes to do the job that I'm doing now, that is being a portfolio manager for private client wealth. Now, how do you get there, right? So for me, what was kind of interesting is it coincided with me becoming a part-time empty nester. My kids graduated, went to university, being around an entrepreneur who's also a world-renowned, highly published and cited orthopedic surgeon who's known for his contributions to evidence-based medicine. So you meet somebody like this, right? Um, Very, very well-known guy. Uh, you know, one of the most cited uh, orthopedic surgeons in the world in terms of his publications. And to see how multifaceted he was, it had a profound positive effect on me. And I went from seeing myself as kind of a propeller head finance guy to crunch numbers to someone who could do much more. So the informal part is I was born in the UK to multicultural parents who met during the Second World War. I'm the last of eight children by them. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. You don't hear that very often. (laughs) No, no, not anymore. (laughs) And I benefited greatly from observing my older brothers and sisters, right? So being the last is probably the reason why I'm inclined to be an observer and to take notes, right? I think this has definitely shaped the person I've become, right? So you understand from a very early age that you're, you're kind of a person that stands back and watches. Well, it took me many, many years to determine I had all the requisite skills to achieve a significant personal goal, which is to move from a person, an observer, to more of a participant. And then, you know, I liken it to going from backstage to greeting people into a theater, right? Well, as you get older, it, it gets harder to do that. Why? Our mm-hmm. world tends to get smaller. We tend to meet fewer and fewer people. Our mm-hmm. outlook can become more inwards focused. So to combat that tendency, I started performing in an 80s new wave cover band on weekends throughout no Southern way. Ontario, <laughs> right? So yeah. um, I believe in the rule of two, which is this, and this is, you know, whether it's finance or not, this is a really good kind mm-hmm. of a rule that I've taken on, which is If you're going to do something, it should produce at least two key benefits. So in addition to learning new skills and getting comfortable making tons of mistakes playing live music in real time, there's an additional benefit of showing my children who are in the audience that nothing comes easy in this world and that if dad can do it, it's okay for them to try and fail also, right? Which I think is really important. We live in a culture where people are expected to immediately have competencies uh, and especially with video and, and phones and all of this, the reality is, is it takes lots and lots and lots and lots of practice to get to something. The key thing in my belief is this. It's okay to make mistakes while you're learning as long as you make what I call recoverable errors. And that's a really important concept in finance and in just living. So the very last piece of this is working alongside or with high achievers helps us to improve, right? Iron really does sharpen iron. My goal in life and my work is now the same. I strive to help people around me to get to a stage of self-actualization sooner. It took me in my 50s to figure this out. Now, uh, you know, really, what I do now is when I meet people, because of the rule of two, the people around me also help me to get better at what I do. So that's kind of my background and my bio. Gareth, that's a beautiful answer. I don't think I've had an intro like that before. I mean, I feel like we could kind of pivot here and just talk about life, your journey, what you've learned, your approach. I, I, I love it. You seem to be a really open-minded person wanting to learn from others around you. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, I have to ask you, though, with regards to your cover band, what was your favorite song to sing? Do you have a favorite? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I love... Uh, so, okay, I have no idea demographically about your listeners. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, you know, there's some things that I'm going to say here that may sound like I'm from another planet, okay? But there was a band, um, The Cure... Um, from mm-hmm. the UK. So, you know, I'm, I was born in the UK. So, um, songs by The Cure, uh, I love Simple Minds. 
uh-huh. uh, an, another band, a, a new wave uh, band as well, Howard Jones. A lot of uh-huh. the strange things, and I'll just say this to Yatin, is that it's a strange world in which we live now, right? When I was growing up in the 80s, there was threat of nuclear war. Russia was our enemy, okay? And um, <laughs> we lived through some crazy inflation. And here we are again, right? Yeah. And the yeah. um, reason I'm bringing this up is we had more songs about nuclear Armageddon in the 80s than any generation has ever had. And yet mm-hmm. they were dance music. It was dance music. We would go out and a song called Dancing with Tears in My Eyes would be playing and people would be dancing to that in the club. Right? <laughs> I, and and if, you, if you do a search on this, like this is, you know, my, mm-hmm. my belief is, is that everything that I say should uh, be uh, verifiable. Right, and if you do a, a search on songs mm-hmm. about nuclear war, you'll you'll see people have written about this. Like during the '80s, how is it people were able to 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 actually carry on when this threat was so real, uh, and mm-hmm. it was real, uh, and 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 so what I find is really kind of fascinating is is that um, we we danced even though. Well, you know, there were times where we weren't sure what was going to happen. Sting wrote songs about it, of the police. Uh, so yeah, anyway, so a, a lot of it is that kind of music. Now there's music these days that comes along like Harry Styles. Uh, yeah. you listen to, uh, you know, as it was, as it was borrows so heavily, uh, heavily from eighties music, both in terms of the, the, uh, drums as well as the uh, keyboards. It's, it, there's a band called Aha that came out of the 80s, had very, very similar. And if you fuse these bands together, Harry Styles, and I'm not taking anything away from Harry. I mean, good on him. But he channeled absolutely an 80s aesthetic in that song. That is so interesting. I'm going to go and listen <laughs> to that song today, the lyrics, just to, just to pick up on that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we could talk about so much today. But let's go to the topic at hand. So, uh, do-it-yourself investors, the DIY investors, professional investors, we rely on a lot of information out there, a lot of which comes from analysts. And so maybe we can just start talking about analysts on the sell side, the buy side, summarize this concept for us, summarize what angle are they coming from, what their incentives are. Maybe we can start a bit more open-minded, Gareth, and then I can mm. pick away at a few questions for clarification. Yeah, absolutely. So, a lot of people get confused by the term sell side versus buy side analysts. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what you need to do is you need to let go of the word sell and you ne- need to let go of the word buy. Mm-hmm. And you need to think of it because people are thinking, oh, selling, you're selling stock. No, you're not. What you're doing is you're selling ideas. You're not selling stock. You're selling an idea if you're a sell side analyst. And if you're on the buy side, okay, what you're actually doing is you are buying ideas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's what happens. Uh, a sell side analyst typically, okay, um, is responsible for finding investment opportunities. And an investment opportunity may involve, quote, going long, i.e. buying a, a, a stock or going short, which is selling something you don't own. Okay. Mm-hmm. Both of those exist in the world. Going long, which means actually buying a security, buying stock and shorting. Or, or going short, which is selling something that you don't own with hope to covering it later. And we can talk, we can touch on that in a little bit. But the key thing is this, is that the way that these two types of analysts are incentivized is very different. Okay. Um, so a sell side analyst, typically, like 90% of the time, his or her job is to find stocks that they believe uh, are going to go up in value for whatever reason. And what they do is they will write a report. That report will be then pitched to the buy side, the buy side being portfolio managers and buy side analysts to read. Mm-hmm. 
So the buy side analyst uh, will will read this report from a sell side analyst and say, mm, okay, some some obvious um, bias here. Okay, why? Because the way that the sell side is incentivized. And we're going to get into that because that's critical. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand mm -hmm. the incentive for why somebody's doing something, you really just can't ever get at it. So um, the key thing with it is, is sell side is about selling an idea. The buy side is about buying an okay. idea. Okay. okay. So mm -hmm. they're both richly compensated. Okay. But they have different incentives. So a buy side analyst gets paid when their work contributes to the fund that they're attached to generating positive returns. So for example, mm -hmm. if you own a mutual fund, that mutual fund, let's say it put up a 5% return so far year to date, um, there are going to be, there's a portfolio manager that's running that fund and is deciding what size of positions are going into it, etc. But that portfolio manager may have three or four or five analysts reporting into him or her, providing them with, hey, I think we should be buying this, or I think we should be lightening up on this one now. Mm -hmm. And those those buy side analysts get paid based upon the performance of the fund and the ideas that they've contributed over time. Okay? Okay. Okay. On the other hand, the sell side analyst gets paid when their work contributes to their investment bank making money. Right. So let me be really specific about what that means because people throw around the word banking really loosely too. An investment bank, okay, doesn't put its own money into ideas. An investment bank's job is to say, hmm, Mr. You know, Mr. CEO or Mrs. CEO of ABC Company, our analyst likes your company. We believe that if you had another $50 million that you could accelerate your business plan, would you like $50 million? The CEO mm -hmm. says, yes, please. And then the investment bank says, great, um, here's what we're going to do. Our analyst has a positive report on you. We're going out, we're speaking to a bunch of the buy side portfolio managers, et cetera, they would like to be able to buy shares. Here's the thing. If they buy your shares in the open market, they're going to drive up the share price. We can do a deal that gets $50 million into your bank account, but we're going to do it through a new issue. We're going to raise new capital, you know, same ticker, but we're going to raise new capital on the buy side and we're going to go out to them. So the buy side say, oh yes, you know, I'll, I'll take down 5 million of this or 3 million of this, whatever it happens to be, and new shares get issued. So the share price itself doesn't move dramatically in the on the stock market because this is a brand new issue. The sell side analyst that found the company, mm -hmm. okay, um, ends up getting paid from the investment bank because when they raise that $50 million, they will typically charge a fee. That fee mm -hmm. might be, you know, uh, 8% or 5% of the total amount in commission. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. you have a, you know, <laughs> yeah, so there you go, right? You know, you take 5% of $50 million, that's two and a half million bucks. Okay. Now you have to feed the investment bankers and the investment bankers say, hey, you know, Mr. Analyst or Mrs. Analyst, you can't be directly tied to what we do. Okay. Because it's a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So you're a cost center, but uh, here we go. We're going to flip you, uh, you know, half a million bucks. How's that? How's that feel? Okay, feels pretty good. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so that's so you see the difference on the buy side. That analyst is making money because the unit owners of that mutual fund or that fund, including you and your and your listeners, are actually um, getting gains. On the sell side, it's hey, we sold this deal. Here you go. Right. Very, very different. Why is it very different? Because in the one case, the share price of that company has gone up, which has contributed to the fund actually making gains. And the other one, the company's just done a funding. We still don't know, is that money going to be well spent? 
Is it mm-hmm. going to be used in value creating or value destroying activities? We got no idea. So the sell side analyst gets paid on a much shorter time frame, and mm-hmm. it really has nothing to do with yet whether that company is fundamentally successful. That is fascinating. So one question I have is sell side analysts. I can kind of maybe imagine a bit of a spectrum here. On one side, I feel like the good sell side analysts, it may be in their best interest to be the first ones to come out with a really good idea and maybe present this information to to the buy side. On the other hand, if there already is good information out there, there could be a bunch of sell side analysts saying, well, it doesn't really matter what we say now. Can you just talk about this spectrum and maybe shed light on what percentage of sell side analysts are really strong? Because I imagine if you have the mindset of being the first one to come out with useful information for people to act on, you you could be adding a lot of value, but also be compensated very richly. Can you just speak about this? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. one of the things I would say is this. Um, it, it's a great point that you make. And man, oh man, there's so much subtlety in what you just asked in that question. I'm going to have to really cherry pick here to make sure that I don't um, put a fire hose on you for that <laughs> question. Okay, so the first thing is this, okay? Um, part of what you're asking about comes down to the number of analysts that are covering a company. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's part of what you're asking. So let, let's let's step back for a sec. Company X appears on the scene, okay? It's only got, it's a very small market cap. Why is it market capitalization, i.e. the number of shares times the price of the shares, it's worth less than, let's make up a number here, it's worth less than $100 million in terms of its total market capitalization, which is tiny, right? So you've got trillion dollar market capitalization companies out there now, and you've got companies like $100 million is tiny. So what happens is the first analyst on the scene that identifies this company writes it up, and they establish a forecast Okay, here's what we think in terms of the revenue, here's what we think in terms of the profit, uh, and, and here's what management's doing, and here's their strategy, etc. That piece of research goes out into the marketplace. Now, you might mm-hmm. think, this is great. We've gone from knowing nothing about this company to having, quote, an independent set of eyes on this company. Okay, here's the tricky part. Okay, that first analyst that finds it is typically working for a firm that has a focus on small capitalization companies. Right. Small capitalization companies don't have much in terms of an operating history. Okay. Which means that they they are among the highest risk things that you're going to find as publicly traded companies. And that analyst, that first analyst to the table, not always, but very often is going to be the first analyst to get paid on a deal because this is going to be an opportunity for this company to raise capital. Okay. So to, to, to get at the meat of your question now, here's, this is how I think. From, from my years on Bay Street, I really get interested in companies now when I see seven analysts covering it, okay? Now, you might say, well, Gareth, wait a second, seven? Why seven? Yeah. And, <laughs> and it goes like this, okay? The first analyst finds it, okay? Very often, there's an investment banking team that is really hot and bothered to get a deal done for the small cap company, okay? The, the, the small cap company has a, typically will have a uh, CEO, CFO, this may be their first uh, rodeo, because you know they might not have ever done a public company before, so they're going to raise some capital. Great, it might be a three million dollar raise, tiny. Okay, well, what happens is very quickly, a couple of other analysts sniffing around say, "Oh my gosh, this is a really interesting company. Uh, I'm going to get on that trade." So they mm-hmm. they start covering it. Now, all of these three analysts are probably going to have bullish opinions, i.e., buy recommendations. Why? Because what's the point of having a negative opinion on a company no one's ever heard of? 
Fair enough. <laughs> right? So yeah. typically, and again, these are, these are, I'm whitewashing in crazy terms here, folks, but please understand. I mean, this is, this is me just, this is, these are my, this is my experience. This is what I've seen, right? So the first three analysts in, buy, 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 right? Uh, and, and, and guess what? The way that a, an investment bank works is typically there's a syndicate. A syndicate means that several different investment banks are going to go in on a deal to try and get the money raised. So you go from, you know, maybe one investment bank, the first analyst doing a $3 million deal. There's three analysts on the scene now. Um, so, you know, the next deal might be a $5 million or an $8 million in, in banking deal that gets done and the investment banks get paid. Two more analysts come in. Right, and again, these are analysts because it's still early days. So I think the company is still a relatively small company, and and analysts are casting around looking for com new companies to cover. So you get up to five or so. Now, what starts to happen is by the time you get to about five analysts covering a company, there's enough of a you know you've got more than three analysts covering it, and you've got some shading now. People have different revenue expectations. They've got different forecasts for earnings, etc. This starts to become interesting, and there's a bunch of statistical packages out there that will start to pick up coverage on this, not the individual analysts, but on the consensus information. So now you're starting to actually get a robust data set out there that's forward-looking. Then this is where it starts to get interesting. By the time you start to get to the sixth and seventh analyst, you're getting analysts that are covering this sector already. And it's like, hey, Joe, yeah, well, I don't know if you've heard, there's this new company, XYZ company that's come out. Um, you know, it's in the same space as these other companies you're covering. Yeah, you should probably take a look at covering it. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, well, it's tiny. Yeah, but you know what? Like you do cover this sector and it is in the sector. So number six comes out and this number six looks at it and says, okay, it's fraught with risk. It's tiny. There've been some execution errors. I'm going to call it a hold, but I'm covering it. Do you see the yeah. subtle change that's happening here? Number yeah, six yeah. and number seven are kind of told you ought to cover this because this is in your space. Now the investment bankers at six and seven are, are, are like, hey, there's still an opportunity for us to participate in future financings. And as this thing gets bigger, mm -hmm. they're going to want to play with us because we're a bigger bank. We wouldn't have come in as number one, two, or three, but you know we're a big enough investment bank that you know this company is going to want to deal with us later. It's kind of like moving up in the from from the minor leagues to the major leagues with us. So so you get to this point, and just what I would say to your listeners is, take a look at the number of analysts that are covering a company. Okay. Before you tow in, because generally, and again, this is my my personal opinion from having done this job for many many years, and of having I, I was a small cap specialist. I was a small capital yeah. capitalization specialist in Canada, so I know of this directly. You, in, unless you're specifically targeting small cap companies, i.e., you know, I want to buy a company that's got fifty million dollars in market capitalization that trades by appointment. You know, sometimes I can buy it, sometimes I can't get out. If that's what you're looking for, hey, that disregard what I'm saying. But if you're looking for quality companies where you think you can buy something and say, okay, I'm buying it for this reason, and it's gonna, I'm, I'm going to be buying it for you know, I hope for the long term. Look for at least seven analysts. Okay, how as a DIY investor. I don't invest in specific stocks or companies as much anymore, but how do I go about and find out how many analysts are covering a company? So there are a number of um, retail, uh, and when I say retail, I mean no disrespect. You know, private wealth, retail, they're different terms for the same thing. Retail yeah. effectively means non-institutional. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the gold standard, in my opinion, there, there's two companies that provide what I would call gold standard products. Um, and they're priced as such. 
One is Bloomberg, which all of your listeners no doubt have heard yeah. about. Bloomberg, I believe, charges about 2500 US a month for their service. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, pretty expensive for, for, for mm -hmm. you know, if you don't know what you're doing with it. Another one is called FactSet. Uh, FactSet is also an institutional-grade product, which I've used for many years. Now, there are products that are made available now, um, and you can um, look them up. Um, you know, I, I don't want to name drop these things because they're a varying quality, but if you do a search of Bloomberg Substitute on Google, people can find those types of things and look into them, and they will provide you with some of these types of things if you're a hardcore DIYer. Just to kind of summarize some of what you just recently said, so if we take a small cap company, for example, let's mm -hmm. say there are only a few analysts covering that company early on. Is it safe to say, based on what you've said, that analysts who may think negatively of this company or may want to say something negative, they may in fact even be stifled and not allowed to speak? Is that is that accurate or is that um, I an don't, exaggeration? Yeah, I don't want to overstate. No, I, I would say they, they do have independence. Okay. So so a couple of things here, you know, yeah, and then it's thank you very much for pointing that out. Like I would say to you, analysts are not they're not bad actors. They're not any of these things. You just have to understand right. how incentives work. Everyone behaves based upon a system of incentives that are provided to them to do, that encourage them to, to, to make certain decisions, right? With analysts, what happens is this. You are working for a small investment bank, okay? And they expect you to cover com 20 companies. You are a cost center. You are not a profit center. What that means is you're not getting paid directly on your on your research you cannot be paid on that because that is a direct conflict of interest that that is literally if it would if you were getting paid based on every buy recommendation there would be a clear stated conflict of interest so the analyst has to uh, genuinely say yes i like this company okay now if a company has a market capitalization of 50 million dollars uh, canadian and if it trades on any given day 10,000 shares Okay, because it's mm -hmm. tiny. And if the share price is $5, and I'm being generous when I say $5, because a lot of these companies might have like a dollar share price or whatever. Right. But so, so you're looking at $50,000 of trading volume a day. Okay, trading that stock isn't going to make a trader at, at a investment dealer rich. So the fundamental question is, is if I spend the time to write up this research on this company, okay, and then I turn around and say sell. Who's going to read this thing, first of mm -hmm. all? Okay. Um, it, it, does it make sense for us to send this out on the on our platform at, at, at this investment bank I work for? Well, mm -hmm. no. Why? Because if you don't own this stock, you're not going to short it because it's so right. thinly traded that you know you, you won't even be able to short it. And there's rules around the ability to sell something you don't own. There, there are a bunch of rules around how you do that. So there's no incentive. You can't make any money. Um, small cap stocks, by and large, the only way you can make money as an investment bank is to have a favorable recommendation on them, okay? Which is why if you ever see, if you ever see an analyst covering small cap companies with a sell recommendation, okay, um, that's, a, that's a rare thing. Um, you know, you will generally see, and again, this is a vast generalization, but I'm confident that I can make it, is that you will, and I'm being conservative when I say this, most investment banks will have something like 70% buys. Um, they might have, you know, 20% holds and 10% sells. And 10% sells is a big number. Um, now, they like to have sells, 
right? So I've just told you all the good reasons to have buys. But investment banks, a sell is a street credibility indicator that says, hey, we're not just shills here. We, we actually take our job seriously. And again, I'm not saying that people are, are, are counseled to have sells. It's have your own opinion, please. Right. Uh, and eventually you do see that. But but overwhelmingly, what you will find is and if you look at the fine print, if you, if any of your clients have um, uh, uh, accounts with a brokerage company and you ever see any research at the very end of research reports, they will often provide you with a breakdown in the fine print of their mix of buys, mm-hmm. holes and sells. The last kind of question on the buy side and the sell side. Is it safe to say that because the buy side analysts, they're they're going to be paid if the if the fund does well. Um, is it safe to say that they're more worried about being correct than the sell side, generally speaking? Um, well, I, I would say this: the credibility of any analyst in any domain, whether it's sports, right, uh, the stock market. Um, movie predictions on box office, you know, yeah, uh, at the end of the day, you need to be right enough that people continue to give you a microphone to speak into, right? So, you know, that short answer is they, they all want to be right. They really do. Uh, the sell side analyst wants to be correct that he or she has not overstepped. The buy side analyst absolutely doesn't want to be uh, making bad calls. Here's the tricky part. If you're a buy side analyst, okay, you will be looking at dozens, if not hundreds of companies, okay? If you're a sell-side analyst, you're looking at 20, okay? You know, any of your listeners that are fans of baseball or sports, and I'm terrible at sports, by the way, like I've got terrible sports numeracy and literacy skills. It's an area that I've had to sacrifice in my life for other things. But what I do know from my friends that that follow baseball and and other sports is, you know, you got to look at the statistics overall. Now, if you're only covering 20 companies, or you're covering hundreds of companies, you have much greater opportunity to be able to be right um, if if you know your your method uh, you know is is spread over multiple um, mm-hmm. opportunities, right? The smaller mm-hmm. the sample set that you have, the greater the probability that if you're wrong, it it's it's essentially a significant percentage. It's like right. you know, imagine if you play um, uh, Texas Hold'em and you're dealt you know a pair of aces. Well, that's the strongest possible two cards you can get in Texas Hold'em. However, okay, you know that it's absolutely possible that somebody can have the worst possible hand in Texas Hold'em, which is mm-hmm. a 2-7 offsuit in their hand, and they can still get dealt the first three cards that gives them a full house or, or the, a really strong hand. So you always right. have to be mindful that even though you've got a really, really great idea, there is still a possibility that it may not work out. And when you're a sell-side analyst only covering 20 companies, mm-hmm. um, you, you know your, your percentages matter. Uh, okay. And the other thing is too, from a sell-side analyst perspective is you produce one idea at a time. If you first idea that you put out, if it's a clunker, it gets harder for you to get voice or uh, you know share of attention with your second one. So typically, when a new sell-side analyst is starting out, they're trying to make sure that their first one, two, three, four picks, they, they really want them to be the absolute best ideas they can. And, and that's mm-hmm. what leads to a kind of a sell-side analyst problem, which is you take a look. Most sell-side analysts, when they produce their first research report, it's, mm-hmm. it's like war and peace. It's like a, a, <laughs> a, a Tolstoy novel. Because they, they've mistaken <laughs> volume for insight. But they get, they, you know, over time, they get shorter and shorter in what they write as they figure it out. 
when I go to the Globe and Mail, and let's say I put in a company's ticker in the search box, and then I get all this data on that company, and I go to analyst estimates, and I see, okay, seven people say buy, one person says hold, one person says sell. Those are sell-side analysts, right? Yes. And then if I'm going to BNN Bloomberg and I see top picks by this portfolio manager, that's going to be more on the buy side, right? That's right. And so so, so it's interesting what you just did there, right? You said Globe and Mail, sell side, and BNN <laughs> Bloomberg and buy side. And what you'll see generally, and this is not, again, this is not a criticism, but what you'll find is, is that um, it's generally understood that when you're dealing with the buy side, if it's, you know, the, these are people who have actually committed money, right? So, so there's, a, there's an old expression, right? Involved versus committed. I don't know if you've ever seen mm -hmm. this. It's a really old meme. Well, it was a poster before memes were called memes, but there's a picture of a chicken and a, and a pig, okay? And <laughs> the, the poster would say chicken involved, uh, i.e. laying eggs, and then it would show the, 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 the pig is committed because it becomes bacon. Right, so so the the, the the key there, you know, I always used to think of this as the the you know, and as a sell side analyst, I would include myself in this. I was involved. I would produce research. If you're on the buy side, you're actually buying those stocks, those equities. Okay, so you you actually committed capital to that, right? So which one of those groups do you think you you, you have more will have more conviction? Right, the one that, that that's producing research versus the one that's actually buying the stock, right? So, so to that point, you know, when you mentioned BNN, Bl Bloomberg, and they talk about portfolio managers, the idea here is, hey, folks, you should listen to these people because they're they are um, they own this thing, and uh, and they will actually disclose when, when you know you'll find, you know, um, on the sell side, they they can't own. By the way, uh, sell side right. analysts are not allowed right. to own their stories. On the buy mm -hmm. side, you will always hear this, and you know, uh, for the record, I own this, or the fund owns this, or you know, uh, no, we don't own it, but we're we're looking at it. So, so they will actually disclose where they sit in this. But the buy side, um, yeah, that that's a that's a really important distinction. And generally, when you're dealing with the buy side, uh, what you're getting is the point of view of somebody that already owns. The stock, which, which, if I may segue into something, there's a term mm -hmm. term that we've used, uh, my friends and I. It's not a w widely known term, but but we refer to because we think this is really important. Um, people that own stocks and talk about them. Okay, like, again, we talk everything about we've talked about is about incentives. Uh, the mm -hmm. term that I use is whalar. Okay, whalar means we are long and recommend. So W A L A R. Okay, this is what most portfolio managers when they're talking. So they, they've bought the stock, they own the stock. Now they're going to talk about the stock. What do you think that's going to do for the share price of the stock? Yeah, it's going to go up. <laughs> right, because, you know, really what makes a stock go up? More buyers and sellers, right? Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that, that, that they're only going on the show because it's a piece of junk and they're trying to get people to buy it. No, but, but they own it. And there, there's a number of objectives that they may have for going on that show. One is to try to get more people to buy their fund, right, uh, which, mm -hmm. which gives them more assets under management to deploy. Some of it is education that, the, the, you know, it may be goodwill. Another piece of it is, is, is you know, truly that there's a relationship that the, um, uh, that the uh, fund company is trying to, to, to uh, inculcate. It may be a brand new fund company, whatever they're trying to get the word out, whatever it happens to be. So we are long and recommend is a time-honored uh, tradition 
of talking up your own book. And it's it's there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. What's dangerous is the flip side of this, okay? Um, and the flip side of it is what we call tomos. A mm-hmm. tomo is somebody, and we call that take out my offer, T-O-M-O. And what that means is, and I've seen this firsthand, this is somebody that goes on to a television show and is talking about the merits of owning such and such a company. And even as they're talking about how great it is, there's an outstanding order to be selling them out of that position. Yeah. We see this all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. right. Now, I'll tell you, it doesn't happen with large cap. Why doesn't it happen with large cap? Because the buyers out there watching BNN aren't going to move the share price. But in small cap and micro cap world, I'm talking, you know, a $25 million, $30 million market capitalization company. Mm-hmm. This kind of stuff happens. I was working at a brokerage firm who shall remain nameless. And uh, there was one of these personalities on television. The traders were watching it with me. And we were working an order. At, at, we were given an order by this guy to be selling. And he's talking about it on the television screen as we're there. Now, I'm, I'm glad to say this person is, is you know, not followed and very few people have anything to do with, with this person. But, you know, it, 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 that's just terrible. That is just remarkably unethical. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's very helpful information, though, to, to understand the angles that people may come from and what may be driving that. Gareth, let's move on to the next section uh, of the pod, and that is basically about what makes a stock price go go up and down. And the simple answer may be supply-demand, but it's probably a lot more complex than that. So I know we're going to be getting into the concepts of fair value, Yeah. but maybe you can talk to us about valuation what we need to know here again. I'll I'll start it open ended and then I'll pick away with a few clarifying questions. Absolutely. So yeah, let me say this to, to right off the get go. I think one of the biggest problems when it comes to the the uninitiated in capital markets is confusing price and value. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now th- th- there is no this this isn't you know tricky. Value is the um, it, it, what's the fair value of the asset compared to where is it trading right now? Price is is just literally a dollar, three dollars, whatever. The problem is, is that people will often confuse. Oh, a dollar a share—that's really cheap. No, it's not necessarily really cheap. Okay, it just means that they have so many shares outstanding mm-hmm. that you know a dollar a share is still a billion-dollar market capitalization. Okay, uh, and and you can see people get confused by this when a company splits its stock. Okay, if a company has a hundred shares at ten dollars a share, that's a thousand dollars. If they mm-hmm. suddenly turn around and they go from a hundred shares to a thousand shares, and the price drops to a dollar, and people look at that and go, "Well, it used to be ten dollars, now it's a dollar." Okay, um, wow. Well, it's not going to ten dollars immediately because it's the same market capitalization. It was a, you know, it was ten dollars a share times a hundred shares yesterday, which is a thousand dollar market capitalization. And today, it's a dollar a share with a thousand shares that have issued, that have been issued because mm-hmm. they split the. And so, it's still a thousand dollar market capitalization. Nothing mm-hmm. has changed except the price. And and some people confuse price with. Um, opportunity and value. Uh, it's it's kind of lottery ticket thinking. The, the lower the share price of a stock, the more attractive it seems to appear. That's behavioral finance. That's got nothing to do with value. So, you know, value is this. 
what is the discounted cash flow per share of this company's future prospects. If the discounted value is greater than the share price right now, I should buy that thing. Okay? Because the fair value of this thing is greater than what it's trading at. If the if the fair value is lower, don't buy it right now, right? If if you know, so what I spend a lot of time doing and what I did for many many years uh working on the sell side and on the buy side is trying to establish what is the fair value of the thing. Um, and, um, you know, it, it is filled with, with, with a whole bunch of assumptions. Like the, the short answer is this, you are going to have to make guesses. Okay. But I think, um, you know, your, your listeners are trained at making educated guesses. You can do this. So I'll start with a very simple metric. Mm-hmm. Okay. Price to earnings multiples. Price to earnings multiples, any company that's got positive earnings has a price to earnings multiple. What is it? It's the share price of the company divided by the earnings per share of the company for the on, on either a trailing basis, i.e. the last four quarters behind it or the next four quarters in front of it. And so you'll see a company, you know, one company might be trading at a price to earnings multiple of five times. What does that mean? It means that if the company doesn't have any growth at all, Okay, in five years, its earnings will equal its price. That makes sense, yeah. right? Yeah. Which, and you look at that and you go, okay, so you know, how do we normally think about this? We typically don't think about PEs intuitively. Most of us think of e- EPs, which is earnings yield. So put another way, if a company is trading at a PE of five, that is today's price divided by next year's earnings, the price is five times the earnings. Another way to look at it is, hey. On an earnings yield, this is a twenty percent earnings yield. Okay, mm-hmm. so you know from a from a um, you know if, if you could get you know with a bank loan, for example, something like this, you know, people are accustomed to saying, okay, I'm getting charged five percent. Okay, would you rather be charged five percent or ten percent? Well, you'd rather be charged five percent. If you're earning, what would you rather be earning? Five percent or ten percent? Well, the answer is yeah, ten percent. That's right. So. You know, in, intuitively, most people should be looking for companies that have low price-to-earnings multiples. Why? Because the inverse of that is a higher earnings yield. The funny thing is, and this is the craziest part to me, the extent to which people will chase after companies where the earnings yield is less than 1%. Think about that for a minute. The earnings yield, you know, people will, will go out and chase after companies where the earnings yield is less than 1%. So I don't talk a lot about um, companies, right? And, and generally, because again, this is going to be a long tail podcast and people might come and find this much, much later on. But, but you know, Apple is such a well-known company, mm-hmm. right? Why don't we just take a look at, at, at Apple, okay? So Apple is trading at a forward. So if you take its price, which, you know, I don't have that in front of me right now, but a couple of days ago, it was trading at what, um, I'm going to say 150 something dollars comes mm-hmm. to mind. Mm-hmm. Let's call it for say a hundred, let's call it 156 bucks. Okay. A couple of days ago, 156 bucks trading at 25 times next year's earnings. Well, if you take the inverse of that one divided by 25, okay, that's a 4% earnings yield on Apple. Okay, so people are willing to say in Apple's case, okay, uh, yeah, it's going to take basically uh, 25 years for the earnings to equal the share price, but I'm going to mm-hmm. buy it. 
Now, there's 50 analysts that cover Apple, 50, 50. Okay, um, and they 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 overwhelmingly really really like it. The thing for me is when I look at a company like Apple, and and you know, great company, like history of really really strong profitability, etc. 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 The difficulty I have is, let's go now and talk about value. Okay, if you look at Apple, and it's and it's um it's forward price to earnings multiple. That is to say, where does it typically trade? Well, in the last 10 years, the lowest forward multiple where Apple's traded, i.e., if you take its price at, at, at any given time in the last 10 years and you look at the next four quarters earnings, the next years of earnings, the lowest multiple Apple's ever traded at is 10 times. Mm-hmm. The highest it's ever traded at is 29 times. It's trading at 25 times right now, okay? Which means that, you know, really, um, if you look at that range, Nine percent of the time in the last ten years has Apple traded at a higher price right. to earnings multiple than where it is right, right now. And and let, let's step back. What has Apple done in the last ten years? Amazing stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. A, a, a really amazing stuff. The iPad rollout, the uh, earbuds, right? Um, incredible innovations in the iPhone. They've launched Apple's, uh, you know, music service, uh, Apple TV, etc. A number of okay, so. Are the next 10 years going to be as filled with innovation at Apple as the last 10? Well, you, you better hope so, because if, you yeah. buy, if you're buying it here, right? If you're buying it here, you're assuming that, man, it, it, it better do something, because if the, the multiple at 25 times, only 9% of the time is it ever traded at a higher multiple than where it is right now in the last 10 years. Um, I'm glad you've kind of brought this up, the the price to earnings ratio, and then you flipped it and you gave us the earnings yield. And that has made me think of one question. So if I take the earnings yield and then if i compare the yield on the i guess the 10-year u.s treasury i was reading a few articles recently where a comparison was made between the differential between the earnings yield and the current yield on the the 10-year note which i think is over three percent now yeah and so that brings us to a point i think called the the equity risk premium can you talk to us a bit about that because i think it's important for people to at least have a a fundamental understanding of this yeah so the uh, you can't see me right now on the nature of this call but i am smiling beyond belief here because you're these are questions i love oh i mean you've made my day okay like no but like yatin i cannot even begin to tell you uh, like this is my passion. I love this stuff, and it and and I can count on one hand the number of times somebody's ever asked me these types of things. So yes, so so let me step back, and I'm going to try to make some finance arcana, <laughs> you know, stuff that's incredibly arcane, really approachable. Okay, so you're absolutely right. So so here's the deal: when it comes to valuing um, stocks. There, there, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of components here, and I'm going to deal with them, um, you know, in, in, in a, uh, in a way that if somebody's driving their car, they're not going to lose focus or have to stop and write this down. Okay, but think of it mm-hmm. this way: you've got what's called the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate is typically the 10-year Treasury bond in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. Okay, it's train. Why? Because it's guaranteed by the U.S. government. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that risk-free rate is the absolute, you know, um, it, it is is what you should get for taking no risk. And you're right. If that's a 3%, the next question you should be asking is, okay, so um, if I'm going to own a stock, what what should I be looking for? Okay. And that gets into this thing called KE. KE 
stands for cost of equity. Okay, and um, KE is equal to a very simple formula. Okay, cost of equity is equal to the risk-free rate, which is the ten-year Treasury yield. Okay, plus what's called the equity risk premium times something called beta. Now, beta is statistically derived based upon how a company's stock trades in the context of the market. Right. So let me just back up for one second here and give you a, a quick thing. A beta of one refers to how the market moves itself. Okay, so for example, if, you're, if, you're, if your universe that you were considering was the S&P 500, you would consider the S&P 500 to have a beta of one. And you would then compare every stock within the S&P 500 in terms of its movement against how the S&P 500 moves mm -hmm. to determine mm -hmm. what its beta is, i.e. if the S&P 500 goes up 1%, this thing mm -hmm. goes up 1.5%. Hmm. You end up deriving that this thing's got a beta of 1.5. Right. So let's go back to the risk-free rate now. You have, a, for simple argument, you've got, let's say, a risk-free rate of 3%. Okay, you've got an equity risk premium of 5%, and I'm just using some round numbers here, and now you've got a beta of 1.5. So you have mm -hmm. 3 plus 1.5 times 5. Okay, so when you do this, you end up getting a, uh, in this particular case, you'd get a 10.5% cost of equity. That cost of equity is what you should discount future earnings by to get to the fair value to equity holders of a, of, of that company that has that beta of 1.5. Okay, okay, I'm just trying to wrap my yeah. <laughs> so 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. what am I saying here? I'm actually <laughs> yeah, saying yeah. so you talked about you talked about the 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 ten year bond yield and yeah. about an earnings yield, right? We're, yeah. we're talking about an earnings yield. And what I'm saying to you is is that the cost of equity is essentially the earnings yield. Right, like that—that's the if you want, mm -hmm. that's the discount rate. That's the rate that you bring all the future earnings to the present. That—that's the rate, the mm -hmm. rate that you mm -hmm. need to be compensated at, okay, in order for you to want to own this thing, right? So, gotcha. higher yeah. risk companies will have higher betas. Gotcha. Yeah. Lower risk companies, like for example, a utility, might have a beta of 0.5. Okay, so it, it basically, when the S and P 500 moves, the utility moves less. Well, why? There's a bunch of reasons why utilities have lower betas. Here, I'll, I mean, I'll, just off the top of my head, here's a couple of things. The first one is is that um, utilities are a necessary good. You don't have a choice. You can't opt out. They're typically um, monopolies, right? So, you know, you got electricity or you got water utility, whatever. You can't say, well, I'm, I'm going to switch out my water utility at my house and get so-and-so, right? Not possible. The government se separately steps into these utilities and says to them, hey, we're going to give you by law a price that you're allowed to charge so that you can earn a minimum return on the assets and the capital expenditures that you're making to continue to make sure you can continue to provide service. So the government says, hey, Mr. Utility or Mrs. Utility, uh, you're allowed to charge this price. Well, once that happens, okay, the risk associated with the utility is much, much lower. Mm -hmm. People can't mm -hmm. opt out. So they will have a much lower cost of equity than a tech company. Right, tech company right. risky. Right. People might not use it. They might swap for a substitute. Utility, no choice. Regional monopoly. Government sets the pricing. You get the idea, right? Got it. Got so, it. so that sets the discount rate that everyone should be looking at. The big problem that a lot of investors have is that they think it's just a blanket. Oh yeah, they've all. Let's just use ten percent. Well, no, 
no, no, no, right? <laughs> a last question I had about price to earnings before we get into the final segment is we will see the trailing PE ratio. We'll see the forward PE ratio. If I'm looking at those numbers, should I be looking at both? Should I be taking an average? And then right. finally, just kind of talk about the importance perhaps of maybe looking at historical PE ratios for, for a company over time. Yeah. So actually, those are those are two very different things. So I'll, yep. I'll just tell you. So a, a trailing PE ratio, okay, a trailing PE ratio is today's price mm-hmm. divided by the last four mm-hmm. quarters of earnings, okay, or or sometimes the last reported year. I would actually say to you, it's really important to know because trailing PE in and of itself is not enough information to know. You need to know, is this trailing 12 months mm-hmm. or is this trailing most recent year? Okay, the reason is this, if it's trailing most recent year, and you're now in the fourth quarter of the new year, you're actually looking back on earnings from almost (laughs) two years ago. (laughs) So you should be looking at trailing 12 month PEs at a minimum, please, please, you know, if you're a listener of this, don't ever, you know, ask your first, the first question should be, if I'm looking at a trailing PE, is it trailing 12 months? If it's not trailing 12 months, I would say to you, okay. that is a dangerous PE you're looking at because uh, almost an entire year has passed and it's it's not really mm-hmm. useful anymore. That's okay. an eternity in the stock market. Okay, so uh, a forward one is the same way. Uh, and, and in fact, the same sin can be applied here. When people say forward PE, are you talking about NTM? So November Tango Mike, next 12 months, which is the quarter that hasn't been reported, the next quarter after that, the quarter after that, and the quarter after that. Or are you talking about, no, 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 when it's reporting the year that it hasn't reported yet. So we may be three quarters through the year, okay, and we're still using the whole year um, for this year as the earnings. Well, the reality is the company's reported already three of those quarters. They're already historical. Why are we using that to call that a forward multiple? We should be using the next 12 months. Okay, or the next four quarters. So this always is, should be forward-looking. Okay, so so that's the first difference between the two things. The other thing I'll say to you is is that um, the stock market people say, oh, it's forward-looking, it's forward-looking, it's forward-looking. Okay, and it gets it becomes one of those throwaway phrases, Yatin, in that people start to say things like, oh, well, the market's forward-looking. Yeah, okay, well, great. Let's unpack that. Okay, because a lot of the things that people say they actually have much deeper value, but we kind of just become almost inured or or desensitized to what that really means. Here's what it means in the context of a PE multiple, okay? Um, The trailing 12-month price-to-earnings multiple Mm -hmm. will typically be, okay, much, much higher than the forward next 12 months PE multiple. Why? Because investors that are going to buy the stock are looking forward. The earnings that have just been Mm -hmm. reported Okay, are historical. If it looks as though the outlook for this company is improving, the stock price is going to go up. When the stock price goes up, but the earnings historical have stayed the same, that multiple is going to expand mm-hmm. at a significant rate, the trailing multiple. So the funny thing is, is that the trailing multiple can actually tell you when the bigger it's getting can actually be telling you essentially that uh, people are, are have decided that this company is bottomed, mm-hmm. that the op- the actual opportunities are starting to improve, which which again, right, it, it actually runs counter to what I was just talking to you about in terms of low multiples, 
right? But imagine you've got a company that has done one year, a dollar in earnings for the last 10 years, every year, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar, a dollar. The stock's trading at $10, okay? Press release comes out. Um, hey, we've just developed this brand new technology. Our earnings next year are going to be $2 and they're going to double again the year after that. Okay, so that stock on a trailing basis was $10 over a dollar looking back. The very next day, the stock goes to $20. Why? Because the earnings next year, okay, have, have, have doubled. It was trading at a 10 times price to earnings multiple. Mm -hmm. And this mm -hmm. is a game changing change in the company's prospects. People jump on. Well, on a trailing basis, this thing now has gone from a 10 times PE to a 20 right. times overnight. Right. So, um, yes, both of these metrics have value. There's a lot of context around it. And, and what I'd say to you is, and it's not to be cute, but um, being able to to take apart trailing multiple and a forward multiple um, and looking at both requires some skill. I would generally mm -hmm. say for your for your listeners, um, focus on forward, focus on forward where you can. And And there's a number of reasons that I say that for safety's sake. The first one is, is that um, if you keep to, if you look at where there's seven analysts or more and where you look at the forward multiple, okay, um, and I would say, you know, try to also understand the second part of your question. So your second part, if I remember correctly, was yeah, yeah, the yeah. range of the multiple, historical ranges of multiples. Why does that matter? So mm -hmm. let's go back to that example I just gave you. Here's a company that's had a dollar a year in earnings for a whole bunch of years, right? Okay. And it's trading at 10 times price to earnings. And it's if and if you think about it, if every year has been a dollar, whether it's a forward multiple mm -hmm. or a trailing multiple, the PE's been 10. Okay. Somebody might come along and say, wow, look at this. This thing's trading at a 10 times multiple. It's cheap. But my point would be, yeah, but if you look at this company over the last 10 years, it's always traded at a 10 times multiple. Like you're assuming that it's cheap because it's at an absolute level, what you're not looking at is, you know, historically, how has it traded in the context of the market so that you know that this isn't what's called a value trap. A value trap is a company where what appears to be a really attractive multiple is essentially its everyday multiple. It It's just going to, yep, it's the Eeyore multiple. It's just going to be like this tomorrow <laughs> and the day after. It's not going anywhere. So, hey, congratulations. You've just discovered what a value yeah. trap is. You've bought this thing and it's going no place. Now, I'm really glad you brought that up, Gareth. I think that's an important point to drive home as well. Maybe as we get to the end of this, we can just wrap it up with a few practical points and where, where we can practice prudence. And so when it comes to so what I find really difficult now is, let's say I buy a company. And then that company grows, that company does well. And I'll share one of my holdings that it did well uh, about up, to, up until about a year ago. It was NVIDIA. And it was in 2019, I put in about $5,000. And then very quickly, yeah. as the pandemic went on, that $5,000, it, it honestly it turned into about $35,000. But then I looked at it and I love the sight of that. But then yeah. that became, at that point, a significant chunk of my portfolio so my position sizing in nvidia was a little bit too high you know can can you and i find it really really hard to kind of know when to sell so perhaps because i i have a long-term view i yeah. tend to just buy and hold but in terms of maintaining your position size when it comes to companies when it comes to sectors 
this is not meant to be advice, but just to shed light on good good practices. So uh, congratulations, first of all, on NVIDIA. Um, well, it's it's not it's not nearly what it was, right? Like no, I've no, lost money, but, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I, I get that, and and you know what? If you don't mind, yeah. like so, I, I have a I have a, a near real time database of companies that I look at mm-hmm. all the time. Right? Yeah. And because you brought this up, and we haven't discussed this in advance, I'm just telling you, I'm looking at NVIDIA right now, and I actually counseled my clients against NVIDIA. A bunch of them were phoning me last year mm-hmm. and saying, "Hey, you know, like why don't we own it? Why don't we own it?" And at the time, um, what I said to them was, "Look." Um, the, ver- the multiple where it's trading right now, okay, it was like, um, you know, 80 times or something like that. Mm-hmm. I said, it 0.3% of the time is it traded at a higher multiple than where it is. So, so you're, you know, if we're buying NVIDIA here, as so I said, so let's, no, I'm a fundamental analyst, right? I'm trained as a fundamental analyst and I've covered technology for many years. I said, let's look at NVIDIA, okay? What's gone on with NVIDIA in the last 10 years? Okay, graphics card leader, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... But they also benefited greatly through cryptocurrency mining. Mm-hmm. Okay, what did that do? Well, that they they suddenly started selling a bunch of hardware. And as a guy who's a part-time gamer, I, I mean, I, I game with my son, um, couldn't buy a graphics card for love or money because that market got crowded out by people that were wanting to mine Bitcoin. Okay, so Nvidia sold a bunch of product, made a ton of money, um, and now with the metaverse play. It's like, okay, NVIDIA is going to be the, the, the graphics engine that powers a bunch of the metaverse. Like, great, 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 super, super exciting. The key thing to, to get at your point is this, okay? What I would have said to you is, if we had been chatting, is, okay, um, there's growth. So NVIDIA is showing great growth here. But what we need to look at is what's happening to the valuation. And why I say that is, is that if the company is growing and the share price is going up, but the multiple isn't changing, Mm-hmm. Hang on. Why? Because the growth is equaling, okay, what the share price is doing, which means you're in a great ride. Okay. When the multiple starts to get richer and richer and richer, what's happening is people are crowding that trade. They're buying more and more and more of it because of momentum, but it's getting more expensive. And as it gets more expensive, the range over which it made sense to own it starts to diminish. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a very specific example with NVIDIA, okay, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, please. So NVIDIA um, has, has, you know, I'm looking back on the last 10 years of multiple history. The lowest multiple NVIDIA traded at in the last 10 years was 12 times. The highest was 91 times, mm-hmm. okay? Its median multiple is 31 times. So 50% of the time in the last 10 years, it's traded at a 31 times multiple, Okay, it's trading right now at 39 times. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 34% of the time it's actually traded at a higher multiple than where it is right now. Okay, yep. um, last year, as I said, 0.3% of the time it had traded at a higher multiple. So, you know, as somebody that's trained in statistics, if I said that to you and we were chatting last year, you might have said, yeah. You know, I think I'm going to take some money off the table. Like, there's a there's a huge ask here for Nvidia to backfill in earnings in order for this multiple to come down organically, or people are going to have to sell the stock off like crazy to bring the multiple down. One of two things has to happen. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think you're speaking about this really logically. Like, like these are concepts that sometimes go over our head, but I think you're shedding light in a really important topic: valuation. Well, what what what, yeah. what is it kind of? done compared to its historical norm and yeah i I guess i guess history doesn't lie right so it's uh well that's it well that 
that's that's the beauty of this yet and sorry i i mean i i'm super this is this is one of the areas where it's really hard for me like i i i love this stuff like so for example i'll, I'll share with you something else okay um nvidia has really great historical profitability like if mm -hmm. you look at its profitability in terms of its return on invested capital it's better than 80 percent of companies in the information technology space like amazing mm -hmm. okay however okay if you take a look at this company in terms of, okay, you know, how is its reporting going? Well, its most recent quarter that it reported, um, it reported on August the 24th, it hit revenue expectations of analysts and it beat earnings by 3%. That's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, it, 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 it isn't blowing it out of the park. And if you look ahead in terms of what the analysts think this company is going to do over the next year, its its expectations for revenue growth are only better than seven percent of companies within the information technology space. Wow! So so you see, like I I take this stuff apart, like like with it with a with a unrelenting um, method, and it's it's what lets me sleep at night when I do my work, right? But but you know this is cold hard data. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of the, the thinking, as I would say, you've got a lot of medical professionals. Uh, I, I spent time working with an orthopedic surgeon who is a top ranked evidence based person. And I started to think, OK, I actually have something in common with this guy. Like, I'm not a doctor. Obviously, I would never, ever put myself. But I thought, OK, you know, there are clients out there that are going to think like me in their own chosen spaces. And those types of people may be actually mm -hmm. interested in talking to somebody. Like, I've got people that say to me, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care what you're telling me. I like it. It's going <laughs> up. And I, I've actually had people that have said this to me. And I've said, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I can say to you because, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I don't understand what you're saying. I've, I've brought this to you you know, why are you, why, why would you come to this conclusion? It's, well, I have a feeling. And I said, well, okay, I, I can't, I don't work on that basis. And I, I would hate to think, you know, imagine you go to a doctor and the doctor says, you know, I got a feeling your appendix needs to come out. Like, like I, I don't think you're, well, that's it. Right. But I, I actually have dealt with yeah. people that, 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 that have this thing. If I may, a really, really quick yeah. anecdote. Cause I know, like, as I said, this is a, uh, I, I got a call from a, a, a friend of mine that I've known many, many years. And every once in a while, people will call me and just ask me about stocks. And I love to do this. Right. Uh, one of my clients is a trader, a, a Bay street trader, and he invests with me, uh, which, which is mm -hmm. rare, but he, the reason that he invests with me is he said, you know, what I like about working with you is this Gareth, he says, you know, as a trader, an investment is a trade gone bad, i.e. I thought I was going to own this for 48 hours or four days. I now have to own it for four months or four years because it's gone the wrong way. But he said, I speak to you. <laughs> you give me the statistical lay of the land and I can feel more confident in terms of even if this doesn't work out the way that I want on this trade that I'm coming to you with, your belief is, no, 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 this thing is ticking enough boxes that it's not likely to remain low for long. Okay, so this this one client, this one guy called me up the other day, and he was asking me about a, a, a stock, and I will mention these stocks because this is what he was asking, and they, no, this no one's going to act on this now. But he came to me and he said, "Hey, you know, Gareth, I'm looking at Under Armour, and you know, I'm thinking of buying this." And I said, "That's kind of interesting." I said, "Why?" I said, "You know, it's in this space," and and he said, "Okay." I said, "Look, if you're going to do that, um, 
I would actually buy Crocs. He goes, Crocs, those nasty, and I, I guess, again, your clients know what Crocs are, right? Like <laughs> in every operating room around the world. Right? And, yeah, and yeah. Like, Crocs, you know, this, this, and I said, listen, yeah. let me explain why. And I basically took him through what we just did on NVIDIA. Okay. And I said, Crocs dominates Under Armour on all of these. Like in, in terms of an eclipse, Crocs in terms of relative value to Under Armour eclipses it. Anyway, he phoned me two days ago. And he said, hey, Gareth, remember we were chatting about such and such? And I said, honestly, no, I didn't buy either of those things. I was, you know, I, but he says, you were right. He said, I took down a piece of Under Armour and I took down a piece of Crocs. Crocs provided a 50% greater gain than Under Armour did over the same period. Right? Now, no, but, but and, and yet then I'm going to qualify Jeez. that, okay? Again, I said to yeah. you earlier, the danger of yeah. being like, you know, picking one thing at a time. I don't do that with my clients. I buy, I build baskets for my clients. Some of them work. Some of the stock ideas work, some mm -hmm. of them don't, but on balance, right? Like the idea here is there's enough that you're getting right that, you know, the, 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 there's less pain and yeah. more opportunity to make to, to make money is the idea. Yeah. What, what I'm really impressed by, though, is I didn't even tell you leading up to the conversation today that I was going to bring up NVIDIA. I just brought it up on the spot, yet you have all the data behind it. You have all the metrics. You understand how NVIDIA lies right now compared to its historical norms and i think you're by relaying this information gareth i think you're shedding light on one other important concept and that is the importance of understanding what you're investing in and i think that's as we wrap things up that should be a take-home point here because i think it is it is critical yeah well i gotta say um you had me at uh equity risk premium and uh <laughs> I, 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 no i mean I, you you have made my day like i gotta tell you the number of times i try I, I try to bring this up with some of my clients and their eyes roll over like a shark biting down <laughs> on a piece of steak yeah i don't right? think i i don't think i told you i was going to bring that one up too but i came across it in a recent article by david rosenberg and he was going on yeah. about it so i said listen he's mentioned this in three straight articles for three consecutive months i need to <laughs> i need to learn about the equity risk premium so i'm glad we talked about it today but gareth i just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast and i think what I love about you is you're clearly a person who wears many hats. You're passionate about investing. You used to be a singer. You game with your son. You know a lot about poker. It's it's fascinating to me, but that tells me that you are a lifelong learner. You're a curious person and, and you're knowledgeable. So I'm grateful to have you on the pod. And we brought up a lot of other things today. We were talking a bit about small caps. While we don't have time to get into that today, maybe it'll pave way for a future episode. So Gareth, I just, no, seriously, I just want to thank you for your time. Well, I thank you very much. I appreciate it. And at some point, you know, if you uh, you live in Toronto, correct? I do. I do. I live in Thornhill. Yeah, just north of the city. Okay. Yeah. Well, if we we will sometimes do gigs, um, you know, we may be doing a Mississauga gig oh, or something really? like that. I don't think we get to Thornhill, but um, you know, uh, you sound like you probably weren't around for the for the eighties first, no. you know, <laughs> firsthand. But a lot of that music is pretty accessible. And if you listen to a lot of modern music that's popular, you'll find, uh, and, and it borrows heavily from that genre. So, you know, my daughter, who's 24, and my son, who's 21, they come out and their friends come out. And because the music is accessible, if you listen to, you know, any of the radio stations, like Boom, etc., uh, you know, you will hear a lot of the music that we end up playing. 
So it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, that the only thing I am plugging is 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 my band because you're going to pay nothing to come and see like we don't we really ch- charge any kind of a cover but it's a great night out and it's an opportunity to meet a lot of people i've met so many people oh yeah simply through performing i, I, I can really imagine love it. i can imagine what's the name of your band just as we wrap up the company's called smile and wave okay so um it which like it's an absolute uh shameless 80s kind of a thing and you when you say it you can't help but kind of chuckle or smile right but smile and wave <laughs> awesome yeah. awesome well I'll, I'll look out for that and gareth i hope that we can connect in person down the road i really enjoyed talking to you great thank you very much really appreciated the opportunity to chat with you too thank you so much for listening feel free to reach out to gareth at his email in the show notes you can always reach out to me at beyondmbpodcast at gmail.com feel free to follow the podcast follow me on linkedin follow me on instagram i'm always grateful for ratings reviews and suggestions for future topics until next time stay well and stay savvy